Hi, and welcome to Leechfest, a medical history podcast where we are gay. Uh, there's no joke for this one, folks. I'm gay. Because today we're recording for Pride. Mm-hmm. It's a gay episode. We're recording this in Pride Month. It's not going to be out for Pride Month, but Stockholm Pride, it doesn't happen until August. So it's going to be out for our Pride Month. It's going to be out for our Pride Month, and we care about ourselves. <laughs> and International Pride Month is too early in the summer. Everyone is like in like in the Canary Islands having a vacation right now. August is the good month because everyone's home from vacation. Like all straight people are home from vacation. It's like for gay vacation, like right before work. So you can really have those weird pride hookups and then have exchange awkward like eye lines at the office. Uh, awkward what? Like I, like when you, sex lines, when you, like, oh, s- sex when you see someone glasses. else at the office that you hooked up with. Mm-hmm. Like awkward glances at mm-hmm. the office. Uh, but before we dig into this gay episode, the history of homosexuality in a medical history podcast, so you know it's going to be a bit spicy. First, we have to talk about how we have been and who we are. I'm Mia. And I'm Salem. <laughs> and how have you been? I've been okay. I've been mostly working. Yeah, working that good old nine to five. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I've been skating a little bit because the weather is beautiful. Yeah, I just, you know, that's that's basically been my life. There's been a heat wave in Sweden that's like ongoing right now. So as we're recording this in the studio, we are melting and dying. Mm-hmm. But it is nice to be outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially in the evening. I think like summer nights are really nice. Summer nights. Uh, they're nice to be spent skating. Especially here uh, in Sweden, where the sun doesn't set like ever. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we 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 actually just had Midsummer. Yeah. Very. If you've if you've seen the movie Midsummer, that's <laughs> what we've been doing. And we were out until like eleven, bright as day, bright blue as sky, no, no dusk, no nothing. Yeah, just, sun, sun was sky. down, but the sky is still blue. It, it was barely down. Yeah, but it's like it is technically below the horizon. We don't mm-hmm. live above the Arctic Circle, mm-hmm. but just like Fair. straight outside, and the sky is still blue. So mm-hmm. who gives a shit? Mm-hmm. Cows out, grazing. Cows out, sheep, horses out. Horses. Yeah. Might as well be day. Mm-hmm. How have you been? I have been okay. I have had a depression weird time the mm-hmm. last couple of months. Uh, it's not great. Uh, I'm also like, I have like three projects ongoing at the same time right now. I have both my regular work um, that I do in terms of like videos and like this podcast is also like the usual part, part of the usual work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also like doing stuff with like an NGO in Stockholm that's like taking up some time. Um uh, like politics work is also taking up time because like there's an election this fall so there's a lot of like preparatory work for like the campaign and stuff mm-hmm. so it's just a lot of work mm-hmm. so it's a lot of work plus depression which means mm-hmm. I get nothing done <laughs> I and have, then you feel guilty about it and then you feel guilty about it and yeah. then people get mad at you for not doing the work <laughs> and then you feel more guilty and then you don't do any work and then you cry <laughs> and then you take a lot of Ritalin and then you get some work done anyway <laughs> Yeah. But that's basically what I've been doing. Yeah. I'm trying to get more back into streaming because I've been kind of bad with streaming lately. Um, yeah. I think we, we, both, we both have, just like depression, a lot of work. I feel like we both need like a vacation. We definitely need a vacation. Uh, just to get us, like give us a little boost, you know. Yeah. But hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Yeah. We will be free <laughs> from, from the cacophony of work, of labor. Mm-hmm. But before we dig into terms like gay, straight, heterosexual, and homosexual, and all that fun medical history, we of course want to thank our patrons. Patrons get a lot of bonus stuff, uh, including notes, a video version, as well as 
the chance to be like shouted out in the middle of an episode. In this episode, we want to shout out Amaranth. Thank you, Amaranth, for supporting us, for supporting this show. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. Uh, maybe you're even gay, in which case we hope you extra enjoy this episode. Yes. Happy, happy Pride. Happy Pride, Amaranth. Uh, and, and happy Pride, you, dear listener. <laughs> So before we dig into our modern day pride history, how would you like to give us a little bit of a background about ancient homosexuality? I will give you a background. I will give you so much background. So much background. <laughs> um, so I will be talking about ancient Greeks. Nobody's surprised. And I have so much to say about the ancient <laughs> Greeks. I did not... I, I mean, I knew that they, they had a lot of, like... A lot of history with homosexuality, but I did not yeah. expect what I found. So here we go. First of all, the Greeks did not have terms or concepts corresponding to the modern dichotomy of homosexual or heterosexual, mm -hmm. which is something you're going to talk to us about too, yeah. like how these terms came to exist. Exactly. Um, so a popular idea at the time was that a person can respond to beauty in either sex. Diogenes Laertes wrote of Alcibaldus. In his adolescence, he drew the husbands away from their wives, and as a young man, he drew the wives away from their husbands. Mm. Some people were noted for their attraction to one sex exclusively, but they were generally portrayed as an exception. Mm. Um, in any case, attraction to only one sex was seen as a matter of taste or preference rather than a moral issue, and attraction was considered to be born of beauty and excellence of character, not of sex or gender. Excellence of character. And beauty. That's good. I feel like uh, that's something people should put in their grinder profiles. I'm looking for excellence of character. Mm -hmm. Superb performance. Superb performance. In the gymnasium. In, the gym <laughs> in any case, the ancient Greeks were generally quite accepting of homosexual relations, featuring at least five categories, the most common of which was pederasty, yeah. uh, typically between unmarried adult men and adolescent boys but which also included relations between male youths, between adult men, between women and girls, and between adult women. I didn't know this, but pederasty in particular was related to the scarcity-driven economy of the 7th century BCE, specifically due to limited arable land. Population growth needed to be limited, and therefore men married late. However, social attitudes towards homosexuality were not uniform among all Greek city-states in all periods. Eventually, as the Greek economy stabilized and started to flourish due to massive revenues from tributary dependencies <laughs> and a trade monopoly, the age of marriage declined and large families started becoming more desirable due to frequent wars. I love this. This is Marxist sexuality, <laughs> where sexuality changes because of tributary, like, monetary payments. Mm -hmm. See, empire... Empire is straight, I guess. Because mm -hmm. if you have an empire, imperialism is heterosexual. Um, but anyway, homosexuality started falling out of fashion, and it even started being seen as morally dubious by the end of the late 5th century BCE. So, central to Greek homosexual relations was status. Only free men had full status, whereas women, slaves, and boys did not. Mm -hmm. It was therefore acceptable for free men to have sexual relations with any of the latter categories as long as the free man took on an active role. <laughs> the most commonly known type of same-sex relation was between men prior to marriage, which was typically between 20 and 30 years of age, known as erastes, and teenage boys, known as eromenos. 
I like that the Greeks literally said bottoms don't have rights. The Greeks and other other people that I, I will also mention. This type of relationship was typically transitional, though some men never married and spent their lives pursuing young boys. <laughs> um, spent their lives pursuing young boys. Yeah. Getting them twinks. Mm-hmm. And this kind of relationship was also meant to provide the older male an outlet prior to marriage, while also giving the teenaged boy the needed guidance and role modeling that was needed. And this was often needed due to the fact that many boys in their teen years no longer had living fathers due to late marriage age, frequent interstate wars, and low life expectancy. These relationships were seen as pedagogical and masculinizing. Relationships between experienced and cadet warriors, for example, were fought to help instill the masculine values needed for proper military solidarity and discipline. A famous example of homosexual influence in the military in ancient Greece is the sacred band of Thebes, which was a troop made up of 150 pairs of male lovers forming the elite force of the Theban army in the 4th century BC which fought to end Spartan domination. As you can imagine, competitiveness was central to masculine culture throughout Greek history, and therefore athletics and the glorification of the male physique played a central role as well. The Greeks, as we all know, practiced athletics in the nude, and free boys were conditioned to proudly display their bodies to the public. This also immersed them in the ancient Greek belief that a respectable citizen had nothing to conceal. The gymnasium... (laughs) Why does that hit? Show, <laughs> show your dick. It makes you show honest. Show your dick. It makes you honest. If you, you, have, you have nothing to fear if you show your balls. Mm-hmm. The gymnasium was therefore a popular locus for the courtship of youths. Courtship gifts were also very symbolic. A common gift was a cockerel to be used in cockfighting, an intensely competitive sport before an all-male audience. Another popular gift was game, hare or deer, suggesting the hunt, another popular masculine sport that prepared boys for the killing and bloodshed of warfare. Lyres were also popular gifts, with music being another competitive arena for the Greeks. Often, the teenage boys were freeborn, but it wasn't uncommon for slave boys to be courted by their masters or other men. Mm, especially in the, in the academy. The academy? You know, tell me, slave boy. <laughs> what does it mean for... Aristotelian ethics. <laughs> Finally, you get a chance to say, tell me, slave boy. <laughs> tell me, slave boy. That is the, I mean, that is the Socratic method. Mm-hmm. The Socratic, people think this, that the Socratic method is like asking questions and like having a back and forth conversation. The real Socratic method is having gay sex and asking, tell me, slave boy. <laughs> what do you think about this philosophical question? Were slave boys uh, allowed to participate? Because I thought, I thought it was only like, you know, because like slaves, from what I understand, slave boys were not like trained in the art of no. being a man. Yes. Like slave yeah. boys were more just kind of like used. Yes. It seemed because like it was the yeah. free, the free teenage boys that were like trained, trained, like they were mentored for this relationship. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I have a feeling that slave boys were not really trained in the, like the Socratic method. No, they, they were used for the Socratic method as a sort of way to, to demonstrate, to, to like help out in the academy, but they weren't mm-hmm. trained in mm-hmm. the academy. Mm-hmm. Fair. So, so they were more like, they were more there to listen and serve as a passive interlocutor rather than actually learn anything. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. So, uh, moving on from the slave boys, romantic or physical relationships between male youths of the same age were also very commonplace. Relationships between adult men also occurred, though they were generally treated with little respect. Plato's Gorgias calls homosexual men kinaidoi, meaning genital movers. 
and likens their sexual compulsions to men who scratch themselves all the time. In short, homosexuality in adult men was not viewed very favorably and was associated with drunkenness, excess, and perversion. I like the word genital movers. I, I want really, to float in the pride parade for the I genital don't really, movers. I don't, I don't think I really understand what, it, what, what they mean by genital movers. Like, I'm trying to, like... They move them around? Like, the stroke? I think it's just, like, the move, that, they, that they move them around. Or like, like they're, they a, they're yeah. a homie hopper. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, female homoeroticism was quite different. While men usually enjoyed a period of sexual freedom before marriage, girls would typically be given away in their teens, so quite early, lest premarital temptations led to the loss of their prized virginity. There is some evidence that girls entered romantic and sexual relationships with older women with the purpose of preparing for the sexual demands of marriage. The 7th century poetess Sappho of Lesbos, whom we all know and love, mm-hmm. wrote poems expressing passion and desire for intimacy with a younger girl about to be lost to marriage, and consoling her friend who had lost her favorite girl to foreign union. Girls of the same age would also mingle with each other, as underlined in the Spartan poet Alkman's Maiden's Songs, but just as in Sappho's circle, the feminine romance is conceived as preparatory to a necessary heterosexual marriage, not as an alternative to it. There were surely lifelong relationships between adult women, but most texts and material art derives from Greek males, so we don't know so much about it. Yeah. And this is something that unfortunately kind of happens over and over again, that we know a bit more about male sexuality and male homosexuality than we know about women. Yeah, because of sexism. <laughs> History is patriarchal, <laughs> and it sucks. This is a pattern that will not change. <laughs> in, the, in the coming 4,000 years of history after the Greeks, nothing changes. 4,000? Well, 3,000, I guess. Two and a half. Yeah, two and a half. Um, Rome attitudes at the turn of the first millennium mirrored Greek attitudes, in that homosexuality was generally accepted as long as it was practiced in an appropriate manner. This meant that pursuing a young slave was accepted as long as the slave bottomed, as stated by the philosopher Seneca. Ah! <laughs> to, be, to be impudicus, meaning passive, is disgraceful for a free man. It was also considered disgusting to have a relationship with a slave who was old enough to have facial hair. The introduction of Christianity into the Roman Empire brought about the idea that non-procreative sex is sinful, which created a concern around the gender of one's partner. Homosexuality was still tolerated for a few centuries and even practiced by a few Roman emperors. However, in 533 CE, homosexuality became entirely illegal in Rome. Emperor Justinian was actually known to castrate those found guilty of homosexuality, with the law actually prescribing the death sentence, though that was rarely carried out. Fucking Justinian. (laughs) Do we not stand Justinian? We do not stand Justinian. (laughs) What else did he do? I don't remember much of Justinian. Yeah, if I'm but he, he cast very, very Christian king, I believe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, emperor, emperor, and just being a bit of a dick. Mm-hmm. We stand on on this podcast, uh, especially for Pride Month. We stand uh, Elagabalus. Uh, who was that? Who was possibly trans feminine, but definitely hella gay. <laughs> that is an em- that is an emperor who who fucked. Well, Emperor Justinian fucked too, but uh, within the bounds he, of marriage. Yeah, Elagabalus also definitely bottomed, so I feel like that's oh, yeah. uh, good for him or her, depending on or her, depending on the theories. Meanwhile, so this was all Greece and Rome. Uh, in ancient China, 
homosexual relations were pretty commonplace as well, with the majority of emperors in the Han dynasty between 200 BCE and 200 CE taking male lovers in addition to having wives. Hold on, a majority. Yeah. I love that. L lots of them. Like, <laughs> you don't have a male lover? Weirdo. You should get one. You should get one. It's nice, no. try it out. The male favorites enjoyed great power and privilege and did so not only through their physical attributes, but also through special talents like wit, storytelling, music, and so on. Yeah, it's not enough to just like... Be pretty, you have to like... You have to have a whole personality a too. Some special. A popular story is the story of Emperor Ai, who in the last years before Common Era was having a nap with one of his companions, Dong Xian, asleep on his sleeve. Waking up first, the emperor, instead of waking his lover up, chose to cut his sleeve. This tale has produced the Chinese term the passion of the cut sleeve, an euphemism for intimacy between two men. Chinese listeners, is this true? Is this an euphemism or tale you've heard? Please let us know. Anyway, as mentioned before, these men gained favors in the court. Dong Xian's father, for example, was named the Marquis of Guanay, and Dong Xian, his wife and children were moved inside the imperial palace to live with Emperor Ai and his wife. Awesome. I <laughs> polyamorous. Polyamory. I wonder if that was awkward for anybody. I mean, if it, if it was like not unusual. No, but and like jealousy, I, like jealousy I is universal. That is true. But I don't know. Like if it isn't, if it is the norm, then I if feel like norm, yeah. you you can get around that pretty quickly. Sure. I feel like a lot of like as a person who has been in polyamorous relationships, I feel like that is something that it, it, once you get used to it, it's not that bad. It's not a yeah. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine the kids being like, my daddy fucked your daddy. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> Our daddy fucks better than your mom. <laughs> I just wonder if they had conversations about this. Or, like, was this, was this an open discussion or was it like a closed topic that people didn't talk about? You know, like, yeah. were they open about like their relationships or did people just agree to not talk about it? This is what I wonder. I feel like if it was a majority of also who had male lovers, I feel like it's not that unusual. Because the Chinese emperors also had a tendency of inviting inviting people to, to the court, mm -hmm. essentially. But I guess this was a bit they more did, intimate. Yeah. A bit more intimate. It was it was quite yeah. So I don't know. If if there's a Chinese historian out there who's like listening, yeah. please I let us know. I would like, love to know. I would love to know. Also, like finding sources on like on Chinese history is so difficult here in the West. It is, it is. Because I'm guessing a lot of it is in Chinese. And also because all of like European, this is an unfortunate thing, but like a lot of like Anglosphere history is about mm -hmm. the West. Mm -hmm. So like even if we want to be able to like be a bit more diverse in our in our sort of presentation, sometimes it's just difficult because like there are a lot of things who just yeah. aren't translated yeah. yet. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I struggled a little bit with this part. I tried to, to, to include like non-European places mm -hmm. <laughs> and talk about like non-European history, but mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard to find papers yeah. uh, that like seem good and credible mm -hmm. that are also not not about like Europe. Yeah. I, I don't know why. It's just like really hard to find. Well, it's just as historians for the last like five hundred years have exclusively written about like Europe. I know, but like I would just West. think yeah. that it's time to start translating some of that stuff. It's <laughs> yeah. it's time to like start moving towards a more yeah, but that takes time. Uh, diverse history. Yeah. So back to back to ancient China. Since marriage in the upper class was often less due to love and more a way to unite two families, the husband was often free to look elsewhere for romance. And I say romance here, but I mean... Fucking. <laughs> but probably also romance. We're we know... talking about... Stop. 
Oh yeah. yes, daddy. Man, that's so bad. <laughs> um, we talked about this. I remember I was talking about this before, like ages ago, when we were talking about China. Mm-hmm. And one of our earliest episodes, we we're talking about how marriage um, in China was was about like uniting two two, two families. families. Mm-hmm. About incest. I remember that was about on our incest oh, yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. that would sometimes lead to like two two. Two families like constantly like marrying each other like over the generations and that like kind of being incident but really occasionally mm-hmm. it was interesting mm-hmm. interesting that it's like coming back i don't think i remember that particular example but mm. i trust you um yeah so so marriage was more a way to unite families so they didn't have the same like they weren't so so fucking precious about <laughs> only being with that one person for yeah. the rest of your life yeah we know little about whether homosexual relationships were common among the lower classes like, if two peasants had a relationship, but neither of them knew how to read and write, and they didn't write in their diaries about it, it's yeah. where they were never caught, you know, and there's yeah. no, like, nothing in... Like, records. No yeah. records of, like, legal repercussions of, if any, then we don't know if that was common in the lower classes as well. Common problem in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, women's history was rarely recorded, so unfortunately, we know little about lesbian relationships in China at the time. This, Although it almost definitely it almost happened. definitely happened, this era of acceptance in China was somewhat challenged by the discovery of a sixth-century Indian Buddhist text which condemned homosexuality. Even later, in the thirteenth century, homosexuality would be strictly prohibited under the rule of the Mongols and the Mancus. <laughs> uh, Genghis, Genghis, the Mongols. Han, Genghis Khan was not into it. <laughs> he Genghis he didn't Khan, like it. Genghis Khan is also like maybe, and I feel like. A lot of, because of him, the the wider Mongol Empire, maybe this also applied to, but Genghis Khan is also like, I think statistically the most heterosexual man mm-hmm. that has ever lived. Yeah, we're <laughs> like, all related to Genghis Khan. If if you are from Eastern Europe, or f- like f- from the part of Eastern Europe all the way over to like China, mm-hmm. you are you you are related to Genghis Khan. As like a, statistically, you are as an European as an Eastern European person. I am. A, like very likely a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. Almost mathematically, definitely. Definitely. As far as the Islamic empire goes, from what I understand, there's a bit of division of opinion. So the Quran explicitly condemns homosexuality, but doesn't indicate a specific punishment. This has led to some traditions of the prophet accepting homosexuality, while others reporting that the prophet said that both the active and passive partner must be killed or flagellated. As in other parts of the world, homosexuality activity was difficult to prove, and so law was not often enforced. The frequency of homosexual relationships in the Islamic world is well attested by a variety of prose romances, poetry, dream books, and legal and medical literature. Also, Islamic law condemned homosexual practice, not homosexual sentiment, with mutual attraction between males being viewed as natural and normal. As in Greece and Rome, in the Islamic world, one's masculinity or social status was not compromised, as long as they took on the active role. Again, bottoms don't get rights. Bottoms don't have rights. A universal constant throughout (laughs) history is that bottoms don't have rights. However, a difference was that homosexual relations between an older and younger male were not viewed as a masculinizing initiation for the younger, and it was even sometimes seen as bringing disgrace upon the family. However, early history of Islamic homosexuality is scarce, and interest has only recently started to grow, and so we don't know so much about it, yeah. but this is what I found. I, I can also imagine that like a lot of records 
were destroyed due to the <laughs> Ottomans coming in. Because, like, the, the Islamic world has, like, two interesting phases, where it's, like, the Islamic Golden Age, which is, like, really interesting, a lot of weird scientific advancement. Then the Ottomans come in, and they also have, like, a, a lot of innovations, a lot of new social changes and everything. They're very different. Like, mm -hmm. there's a big, like, division between, like, the Arabic Golden, like, the Arab Golden Age and the sort of, like, Turkic Islamic Golden Age. Uh, and I, if I remember correctly, a lot of, like, progressive vibes that existed in, like, the late uh, Islamic Golden uh, age were not around after the Ottomans decided to own everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's... And they destroyed a lot of records, so I can imagine that there's a lot of records also that just, like, are gone. Don't exist anymore. Yeah. Fucking visit Gothic Spain. While Christian theologians continued to denounce non-procreative sexuality, secular law contained few measures against homosexuality, and it wasn't until the later part of the 12th century that persecution of homosexuality rose, alongside that of Muslims, Jews, and heretics. This was partly due to the Gregorian Reform Movement and the Catholic Church, along with class conflict. The reformation of the Catholic Church was the life's work of Pope Gregory VII, and was meant to centralize the church to Rome and increase the church's level of influence. I wonder if the class conflict you mentioned also might be driven about, driven a little bit about uh, the Black Plague. Yeah, it could be. Because mm. like the the Black Plague, you know, killed so many people that like a lot of lower class people had like more political mm. power because mm -hmm. they had to mm -hmm. make food. That could which, be. Which sucks because that means a pandemic caused the plague is homophobic. <laughs> I mean, I think uh, part of the class conflict is just that he he wanted he wanted the church to have more power mm. than the government. Yeah. Um, and so there was a lot of class struggle between the the church and like the secular. Like um, the monarchy. Monarchy, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm, I mean, it might be that the lower classes also were participating. No, in this. your thing sounds much better than my thing. The church is probably more active here than the than mm. anything else. Uh, the church started to appeal to nature as a standard for morality, which became very popular in Western tradition. Here again was an interesting distinction between their terminology and the terminology that we have today. The church was interested in cracking down on sodomites. These were defined as people who engaged in sodomy, which was non-procreative sex. A person who had thoughts of sodomy was not a sodomite, and people in heterosexual marriages could also be sodomites. And there are actually reports of people being beheaded or burned alive for sodomy with a spouse. Yeah. Because, like, yeah, like, oral sex, anal sex, any, any type of sex that doesn't result in kids. Sodomy. 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 However, homosexual sodomy was seen as a more severe sin. In the West, there was no such distinction between the one doing the penetration and the penetrated. Both tops and bottoms were persecuted as sinful perverts. No, no one has rights. In England, when King Henry VIII made his break with the Catholic Church, much of ecclesiastical law had to be transferred to secular law to be tried by the state. This included sexual offenses such as the Act for the Punishment of the Vice of Buggery, yeah. also known as the Buggery Act, punishable by death and passed as an act of parliament during the king's reign. This was initially a general sodomy law, but over time it came to focus solely on male homosexual activity. Also, this 1533 Act formed the foundation for the sodomy laws that the British Empire would export around the world under its colonial rule 300 years later. And some countries still have this law. In 1791, the French introduced a new penal code resting on the principle of legality, so law should be quite clear and there should not be too much room for interpretation for the judge. But not only this. The new penal code also rested on the idea that the state should not meddle in the private acts of private individuals. 
This included blasphemy, witchcraft, heresy, sacrilege, and sodomy. This new penal Lib- libertarian French. <laughs> this new penal code was influenced by the petitioning of groups of uh, militant sodomite citizens, <laughs> which is an interesting term that I did not come up with. Who asked for recognition and for freedom? I love this militant sodomite citizens. This is like a pro- proto gay rights movement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This made the 1791 Penal Code the first Western law to decriminalize same-sex activity since ancient times. The Napoleonic Code followed in 1804 and was adopted by countries occupied by the French under Napoleon, helping spread the model of a criminal code that did not criminalize same-sex activity. However, despite this new penal code, many of these countries still imposed restrictions on LGBT people, particularly in colonies, as a means of social control. Homosexuality was recriminalized in 1861 under the Offenses Against the Person Act, but the death penalty was replaced with life imprisonment, which was later changed to imprisonment of at least two years. Bruh. In 1921, in England and Wales, a provision criminalizing lesbianism was added. This reveals the general invisibility of female sexuality prevalent throughout history. And so this was only in England and Wales? Yeah. But not in Scotland? Uh, Scotland wasn't mentioned, so I don't know. <laughs> I love, I love this idea that because like, <laughs> this is eighteen hundreds, right? Uh, nineteen twenty one. Nineteen twenty one. So th- this is before the UK becomes like too divided. Mm-hmm. So th- <laughs> I love that Scotland is just like no, we're lesbians. No, uh, we allow lesbians. We allow lesbians. We here. we actually have like lesbian marriage is allowed. Are Not we allow ma- lesbians here? <laughs> <laughs> Not homosexual marriages. Uh, homosexual marriage is still not allowed, but lesbian marriage. Yeah, lesbian we allow marriage. that. We love that. And it's not to say women were not persecuted for homosexuality. Rather, that lesbian activity usually was criminalized under other offenses, such as public nuisance or undermining public morality. <laughs> public nuisance. Public nuisance. You're disturbing the peace yeah, with your lesbianism. So <laughs> but it's not funny, really. It's not funny, At the end really. of the day, it's it is quite serious. Horrifying. Uh, I love, love being a public nuisance. An important thing to note is that in the 18th and the 19th centuries, the theological framework no longer dominated the narrative and was instead replaced by secular arguments against homosexuality, including the need for a growing population and the need for intact families with clear gender roles. At the same time, the rise in the prestige of medicine made way for new ideas around homosexuality. It started no longer being viewed as sinful behavior that people chose and rather as a deep unchosen characteristic of a person which also led doctors to campaign for the reduction of criminal penalties of consensual homosexual behavior and rather for the rehabilitation of homosexuals and the prevention of homosexual behavior. A popular belief was that childhood masturbation caused the development of homosexuality and that it must be closely guarded against, but we will talk about that later. So during most of history, Homosexuality has either been like somewhat accepted, except for bottoms, um, or demonized. But the way that it's been demonized has mostly been in a religious way for a variety of reasons, except for the, the Greeks, I guess, who thought that like bottoms just don't have moral character. But around the like mid 1800s, psychology begins to find its roots as a science, and some decide to use psychology to look at homosexuality specifically. Now, a big point of early psychology was to find a non-religious scientific cause of all human behavior and to find a norm. As in, what does it mean to be like a fully functioning adult? 
and tainted by the norm of the society that many of these people came from, being all white men in Western Europe at the height of colonialism, they decided that basically all things previously seen as sinful had a mental or physical component that could be cured. So, and this this goes even to the point of like criminality. People think that there's like people started thinking like this that, that there's a Criminal genetic gene. factor mm-hmm. to why people do crime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they they go too hard a little bit on the scientific factor. Sometimes people just do crime. And the big reason for why they wanted to do this was because they wanted to make their own populace as productive as possible for the state. If people work harder, have more kids, and are healthy. That means more soldiers for the army, more workers in the factories, and more money for the rich and powerful. You want a healthy like, stock of populace to, to work to death. Uh, and so, it's no wonder that the earliest studies around homosexuality have to do with how to catch them and how to cure them into becoming productive family men. To catch them? Yes. In fact, one of the earliest large-scale studies of homosexuality uh, were done by a man called Francois Charles, in 1859, who did it as part of a police information study where he basically tried to help cops to figure out how to identify and arrest gay people so that they could be arrested. Uh, This would include studies on gestures, speaking mannerisms, and clothing style. Another man called Ambroise Tardieu devised a method of identifying gay men by examining their genitals believing that homosexual encounters would change the shape of the genitalia. This was not very scientific in basis, and more whether just like gut feeling, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. But his theory actually went into like, the, the straighter the penis, <laughs> the gayer the man. I get a feeling this guy just wanted to see a lot of penises. <laughs> He's so deep in the closet, he doesn't even know. We all know that like one like gay person who used to be homophobic before they came out. And I know this is bad to say on a medical history podcast, but like a lot of the science that goes into this chapter is complete bullshit. Like your part is pretty good. Like the history part is great. But like my part of like psychology is very much like, I heard from my cousin that the gays uh, all are feminine. And so we look for feminine men and cure them with ice and then they will become heterosexual. (laughs) I don't think it's bad to say. I mean, we can recognize bad science and I think it's pretty like accepted that the the psychology uh yeah. that they did in the 19th century and like you know what later became became conversion therapy we know that yeah. it was it was bullshit it was unethical it wasn't effective yeah. but another important thinker was Karl Heinrich Ulrich who was maybe one of the first people to sort people into sexual groups as we know them and love them today Karl believed that sexuality was something innate and wasn't something that one could be cured over, or something that you could be deterred from doing. Carl was not a doctor, but a lawyer, but his categories became quite influential of early sexology. How interesting that as a lawyer he like just developed sexuality categories. Like <laughs> yeah. did he do that in his free time or was he like Well in he any was way... he was himself gay. He, okay. So he he uh, he he was a very like uh, vocal activist of uh-huh, his time okay. to sort of like try to to do stuff but so as part of like his activism work i think he developed these like categories and he also like tried to, to do studies on his own to see like how many people are gay like what's the what's the statistics mm-hmm. um he his uh his gut feeling about like how many gay people existed was one in 500 a little off <laughs> a little low balling but this is also mid 1800s so i guess mm. 
you know, not everyone's out yet, I guess. Mm -hmm. And to explain these categories, he devised his theory about the third sex, an idea that those who are driven to do homosexual acts are in fact something other than the rest of normal people. This third sex manifested itself biologically in the brain, which he thought well, like, was scientifically possible, and that a person could have a male body, but a female mind, and vice versa. And this led to a few groups of people that Karl coined terms for. Earnings, for example, was what he would call gay men today. Uh, Dionings, for heterosexual men. <laughs> and the equivalent for women was earningning and dioningning. <laughs> Because it's the feminine, like, uh, pronunciation of, like, the, the German for dioining. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, bisexuals, of course, were called ranodioining. Okay, so... Ranodioining. So, 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 earnings for gay men. Mm-hmm. Dionings, heterosexual. Yes. Earning. Erningen. Erningen. Ranondiging. Dionginen. In Uranon Dioninging. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Easy to remember, right? Oh, God. I love the you, 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 you com community. <laughs> um, needless to say, this, uh, this terminology didn't catch on super well. But the concept of... I wonder why. <laughs> I wonder why. But the concept of earning balls became a common party event for LGBT people in Europe at the time. Hmm. You know, people would go there, they would cross-dress, have a fun party. People think ball culture came from, like, New York. Modern ball culture probably did, but, you know, we're, let's not dismiss earning balls. This is later expanded upon by a certain doctor, and this is where things get a bit more scientific and academic. An Austrian doctor, Richard Kuft Ebing, began to examine sexuality as part of his medical work. He's seen as one of the early figures of the field of sexology, despite him being, like, a staunch bigot who wanted to cure the deranged and would have hated the field of sexology. Uh, his work was extremely foundational to modern views of homosexuality, unfortunately. He worked primarily in asylums, and he theorized that homosexuality, a term that he used in his work and helped introduce to English, uh, was a symptom of a variety of things. It could be a moral failing induced by masturbation. He writes about this, like, a lot. <laughs> that, like, if, if young boys masturbate, they will be gay. Kaftebing's main idea was that homosexuality was caused by a biological shift in the womb, which caused a sexual inversion. This is actually why gay history and trans history are quite a bit connected, because this inversion theory claims that homosexuality is a result of gender variance. Um, and this idea is also like, it, it's connected to Ulrich's idea of earnings, that like a person is inherently like homosexual, and that's what drives them, drives them to do homosexual acts. Well, previously it's something that you do, like, it's not something that you necessarily that, identify mm -hmm. as. Mm -hmm. So homosexual, homosexual before this was, like, an act that you did, but after Ulrich uh, and after Kraft Ebing, like, puts it in the medical academy, it mm -hmm. becomes an identifier that, like, mm -hmm. a person can be mm -hmm. something, even if they don't do it. Yeah, like, if you have the urge, like, an, a regular person doesn't have the urge, so if you have the urge, then you're not a regular person. Exactly. You're, like, a special kind of person. Exactly. Um, and that's, that's actually quite new in, like, med in the medical history and in the, in the sort of, like, field of, uh, of like how people identify themselves and it, it comes from this and it's still around today like people still identify as gay you know that's and that's a quite new thing in human history uh, by the way Kraft Ebing also introduced all sorts of words to the English language uh, so we have him to thank for the following uh, sadist which is derived from the brutal sexual practices depicted in the novels of the Marquis de Sade wait was he the guy who wrote 
was it a hundred days of Sodom? The Marquis de Sade? Yeah. Maybe I don't know. I just I, I just wanted. To, okay. Yep, <laughs> that's him. That's him. That is. Uh, that is. I have. I have to say, I've never read the book. <laughs> but because, it is a rough book. Because I have enough nightmares. I don't need more. That is probably one of the most like disgusting books, just for the for for the purpose of being disgusting that I've ever had the displeasure of reading the plotline for. <laughs> Well, the Marquis de Sade was a, like he—he he was um, one of the people who was like most into like sexual liberation. So he, he like, was surely he, he was definitely liberated. He wanted to break all sorts of sexual norms. I mean, um, and yeah. that's where we get the word sadist from Marquis de Sade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fun, right? What? How? How fun to have that word like be derived from your name, right? Like well, you're the, so like you're Marquis so. Marquis de Sade sa- is a title. Oh, okay. So he, he, so that's a place, not a name. I, I think guess. so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word masochist, that he also introduced to English, is derived from the name of Leopold von Saxer Massach, who uh, apparently fucking hated that his name was an inspiration for this, because he was alive at the same time as Kraftebing, and he was like, the fuck? <laughs> you can't Why? use my name for this. And the thing is, I tried looking him up, he didn't really do that much like to like warrant it. <laughs> Maybe they had personal beef, and Kraftebing <laughs> was just like... You know, you know what? what? I'll name... I'm gonna take your name and give it, like, the most <laughs> disgusting... Well, it's not a disgusting connotation. Like, don't quote me on that. But it's... But he thought it was disgusting. And, 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 also, it was. and also, like, if you're not into that, right? Like, somebody taking your name and giving it that connotation is, like, a little shitty. I know, right? And, like, he was alive. Like, he, he, he wrote, like, articles being like, Why? No. Stop. I don't want this. I'm, a, I'm like, a person. <laughs> Krafteberg uh, also gave us the word bisexuality, uh, necrophilia, and analingus. So thank you, Ricky, for giving us analingus. Krafteberg uh, wasn't the first to come up with inversion theory, but his work did become the most influential. And the idea is based on the assumed fact that the correct and normal way humans work is that men are attracted to women and vice versa. That's just biology. That's just uh, primary school biology, honey. That's just honey. Do you not know? That's just nature. Uh, and so on some level, men who are attracted to other men must on some level be women, or at least think that they are. Uh, the same thing was also written about uh, lesbians, but again, we live in a sexist patriarchal society, so he didn't care that much. <laughs> this sexual inversion was to Kraft-Ebing a symptom of a genetic defect leading to a disease that progressed in various stages, which I will read directly from his work, Psychopathica Sexualis. Uh, a work that I've read so many times that I can basically recite it from memory. It goes in four steps, three of which are interesting. Uh, the first step is a simple reversion of sexual feeling. This is when a person can be aroused by seeing a person of the same sex. And if they go into uh, like sexual relations, they will still be in an active position. They will still have the natural position of their sex. Mm-hmm. So for women, that would be in a passive role, and for men, that would be in an active role because he's, he's a weirdo who, who writes like that. The second degree is called evaration and defamination. Evaration, it basically means like fanboy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For lack of a better term, like that means fanboy. And this, and this basically means that like a, a person will still be attracted to uh, the same sex, but will assume the, the, the wrong position, essentially. So men will be bottoms and women will be tops. That's just against the natural order. The third step is a transitional step, so not that fun in it of itself. But the fourth step is called metamorphosis sexualis paranoica. 
Uh, and this one, this is when you're trans. <laughs> this is when you're so gay that you fully believe yourself to be the other sex. And this is literally one of the first times in medical literature where like trans people are depicted. Because <laughs> this is what he assumes. And again, mm. another reason why like trans history and gay history are so very connected because mm. they think it's the same thing. Mm. Love how you start out as gay and then... You, you start out as a top. You start out as a top, then you become a bottom, and then you become a woman. <laughs> it's great. And I mean, speaking from personal experience, wasn't that wrong. <laughs> Don't say that. Kurt <laughs> uh, Ebing and many other thinkers of this time had the idea that sex is for the purpose of having a child, and that any sexual interaction outside of this is a type of degeneracy, and is a perversion of the healthy and normal sexual function that we all should have. <laughs> Degeneration theory is its own whole mess of, like, bullshit. But it basically ends up with thing is not normal, thing is not normal equal means it's bad, and if thing is bad, it will cause more bad things in nature, and the next generation will be even more abnormal and even more bad, and eventually you end up sterile. <laughs> in fact, the, the original, uh, like, guy who did degeneration theory, I didn't put that in here because it would be too long, he, he you know, identifies four different steps of degeneracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two of them are, the th- three of them are um, idiocy, uh, lunacy, and sterility. I mean, what I wonder is like, uh, how can degeneration pass for generations if gay people don't have kids? <laughs> or do you mean if like a gay person were to be in a straight relationship, like they would pass that gayness to their kids? Yeah. And then what? And- and then that kid would be even more degenerate, and then they would. But wouldn't the gay gene more... be? But wouldn't the gay gene be like diluted through generations if they get if they have kids with like straight partners? So, the degeneration the theory states that like it, it's a, it's a dom that degeneration is a dominant thing. It's a dominant trait. It's a dominant trait. So, it just causes more and more. It becomes worse throughout the generations. Interesting. And then the fourth generation, they are sterile. Okay. <laughs> That's definitely, that definitely makes sense. And I, I also, again, I love how they just say shit. They base it on nothing. You say shit. Just come up, I just came up with a theory and uh, basically we should uh, kill all gay people. Because <laughs> otherwise we'll just have sterile people. I, did, did I did I perform any studies for this? No. No. Would but you want me nice. to? But yeah, but like, I think so. So why not? <laughs> it justifies what I want to happen. So Yeah. <laughs> This line of thinking is eventually co-opted by Freud and Freudian thinkers who believe uh, that this theory is basically true, but that it's less biological uh, and more psychological and is caused by childhood trauma that, you know, causes the sexual inversion. And this unfortunately becomes the de facto view of LGBT people within the medical establishment for a significant amount of time. Both Freudian thinkers and Kraft Ebing propose a variety of cures for homosexuality including cold water baths, electroshock therapy, hormone injections, or forced dressing. Uh, as in forcing the patient to conform to gender norms as much as possible in order to correct the mental sex of the patient, and as such, cure them of their homosexuality. Obviously, not everyone agreed with this theory. My perfect little boy, Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, had some other theories when it came to sexuality. Magnus Hirschfeld uh, was a Jewish socialist gay man in Germany, who did a lot of LGBT activism and who I talk a lot about in my personal videos because he basically invented trans healthcare and coined the term transsexual. Ally. 
And, but I also did a lot of work when it comes to like homosexuality as well. Uh, Hirschfeld had similar ideas to Ulrich from earlier in that he believed that all homosexuals were so by nature and not something that was chosen. He also believed that all homosexuals were by nature feminine, that this biological shift would make them more like alike to women. Uh, this is not something that like everyone thought at his like research institute that he founded. Uh, in fact, some people argued that homosexual love is in fact the most masculine love that exists, and that uh, homosexuality is simply an expression of male virility. I love that theory because I agree. <laughs> Do you know when we're talking about like the ancient Greeks and how they they like they spent time with other men? And like they, they did the like in the gymnasium, they oiled each other up and like wrestled and like the, 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 the most beautiful thing in the world for them was like the male physique. And they did all these like masculine things together, yeah. like cockfighting and hunting. How is that? Not, I mean, it's like, honestly, like that's being, hella manly. That's very manly. You only spend time with men and you do manly things together. Yeah. You admire each other's manhood. Being gay is the malleiest thing that you could ever do. Yeah. Well, I will say that, like, with the power of hindsight, I think we can say that both of these interpretations are correct. <laughs> I've been on Grindr. I've seen that it is both the most manly thing in the, in the world and also very feminine. <laughs> now, Hirschfeld claimed that because of this natural state, homosexuality was neither unnatural or immoral and therefore could and should not be cured and should not be illegal. Hirschfeld examined a lot of people, he took in letters from all over the world, and he visited human zoos so that he could talk to people from all over the world who were part of the colonies of the German Empire, and he used these interviews to conclude that homosexuality seems to occur in virtually every continent and every culture in the world. Fuck the thing with the human zoos, though. <laughs> just like, little, I want to mention that. Just like, a little side note, like, fucked up, fucked no, up with the human zoos. Fucked up with the human zoos. <laughs> like, love the sentiment, but... <laughs> He what did, did you say? He didn't like he didn't like colonialism and he didn't like that the, the zoos existed. He he did like anti-racist work and he did like feminist work. But you know, I, I guess it's a good resource to use because like, no. there are people from like no no we've talked all about, over the empire. No 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 we've talked about medical ethics. It it's not <laughs> in fact a good resource. It's not. And I wish he didn't use it. But it was the only way that he had to like talk to people from from the empire. Okay, and well, otherwise did he have to talk to the people in, like, I mean, there, there were locals that he could have talked to. Well, he could he didn't travel. Why didn't he travel? He was, like, wealthy as fuck. He wasn't that wealthy. This is a gay Jewish socialist guy who hung out with his gay friends. Okay, I, okay, fine. I, I don't, I don't stand for it. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is weird. And I do want to point out, that's, that's why I want to point this out. That's like, the human zoo bit is weird. A human zoo, for those of you who don't know, is... A zoo where they put people in, mm -hmm. black people, so that people, white people can come and look at them as if there are zoo animals. Yeah. It is a horrifying thing that existed in European colonialism. And he also argued that because it was a universal phenomenon, it was a core part of human expression, furthering the idea that this was a natural phenomenon with no social aspect whatsoever. And this is actually a bit controversial, like still today, uh, because we don't really know what causes homosexuality. Uh, a lot of people are also arguing that, like, we don't need to fully know. But from, from a scientific point, it's interesting to, like, try to find out why. And, like, there is a biological component. We know this. Mm -hmm. But it's not fully biological. No, it's not fully so... biological. But, it there I mean, there definitely is. Um, you know, I can... 
I can I can see here in your notes that you're saying the studies on twins have been inconclusive, but we do know that having trans and gay family members, especially like immediate family members, yeah. is linked to you being gay or trans yourself. Yeah. So there's definitely there, I mean there's definitely a genetic element, but we don't know if there's more than that. Exactly. So um and I also definitely can see why some people are a bit uncomfortable with us fully knowing what that genetic element is because uh, being gay has not been easy throughout the ages and we are not necessarily only moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're like at all times like on the verge of moving backward. Yes. Um, God, the idea, the idea of them finding a, a gay gene mm -hmm. in a society where they have like genetic testing. Mm -hmm. I don't know about I'm not that. Not super comfortable about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but he did this argument primarily because he wanted to push for decriminalization of homosexuality in the German Empire. And when he presented case studies about like homosexuality and like why it's normal and why it should be accepted in society, like to German politicians, he actually excluded some case studies from his notes because they were a bit like raunchy and like overly sexual. Uh, he very much wanted to present like a view of homosexuals as being like homosexual relationships are loving they are monogamous they are just like anyone else uh, and we can take part in society as normal but if you look at his yeah. notes the, from what he excluded mm -hmm. like he excluded some fucking <laughs> he was like don't worry about the drag queens <laughs> don't worry about don't worry about don't come to drag night because he had drag nights by the way he pres he pres he was because he was a doctor too he prescribed like going to drag shows for people who were depressed yeah you have depression go see go see the queens <laughs> They'll share you right up. They'll, uh, they'll, but doctor, they'll cure you of your depression. But doctor, I am drag queen Pagliacci. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I believe in him. I believe that like psychologists should do this today. I honestly, if they prescribed going to drag nights uh, like as a cure for depression, I do think it would help. Yeah. State, 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 state sponsored, sponsored drag, drag night. Drag night. I would love that. This should be sponsored by the part of the public health care service. We mm -hmm. should have doctors, nurses, and drag Whoa, queens. Well, you're going to politics. Make this happen. Oh, shit, actually. I can. <laughs> I need this. I want this to happen. I need this so bad. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> um, today, we would call this, like, respectability politics. A thing that has, like, issues, mm -hmm. like, in modern day, like, LGBT discourse. Yeah. But in his time... No, like being gay was illegal. Yeah. Like technically illegal, not heavily enforced in his time, thankfully, but like still illegal. So, you know, like th th there are levels of activism that you can do mm -hmm. and respectability politics, while not perfect, is a thing you can do. Yeah. For, for the level of acceptance at the time, this was something that he needed to do. Exactly. Unfortunately, his views also didn't breach the mainstream as during his time, the Nazis come into the picture, as they always do in every one of our episodes. They burned down his institute and harshly enforced anti-homosexual legislation, putting thousands of homosexuals in concentration camps. And the messed up thing is, because concentration camps essentially were just big prisons, and because homosexuality was also illegal in the Allied powers after the Second World War, after the liberation, it was judged that in this case, the Nazis hadn't actually done the thing wrong. They're just enforcing the law. Meaning that a lot of homosexual prisoners were left in the camps after liberation to serve out their sentence. Bruh. 
the Soviet Union had actually decriminalized homosexuality after the communist revolution in 1917. But then Stalin came into the picture and ruined everything for everyone by making it illegal again in 1933. Was it, do you remember in the abortion episode, we also talked about how abortion used to be legal, and then at some point they revised the penal code, and they were like, oh wait, uh, legal for a while, illegal yes. again. Was it like the same set of sort of rulings? Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. After, after the communist revolution, um, there was no mention that of like homosexuality being a crime, uh, that was ratified a couple of times. Same with abortion. Mm. Like abortion was legalized mm. and like made available for everyone in the first constitution, and it was ratified twice, I think, mm. like like in twenty and twenty three, when the Soviet Union was like, okay, we need like uh, the civil war is over. Let's make it. Let's finish up the laws, <laughs> and then they finished up the laws again in nineteen twenty three. And both times, homosexuality and abortion was like, and then Stalin is <laughs> like, we need birth rates to go up. We need more kids. <laughs> no gay people. No abortions. Is this Stalin's voice? Yeah, he sounds like this. I mean, he's a short king. <laughs> Is that the voice of a short king? I don't know. I'm doing weird fun. But all of this leads us closer to the modern day and more modern views on homosexuality and a man called Alfred Kinsey. Kinsey was an American sexologist who found his origins while studying bugs and became fascinated with the sexual lives of insects and eventually humans. After the Second World War, he was pretty instrumental in helping to spring forth the sexual revolution by often publicly speaking out for sexual liberation. Uh, in fact, he was one of the first people who sort of like spoke out against uh, the consensus that women don't like sex. <laughs> and that uh, the clitoris actually, like... He, he, it actually he, does something. It does something. Alfred Kinsey is like, guys, like, fellas, fellas. Lads. <laughs> the clitoris is there for a reason. <laughs> love, love that. Um, and the way he did this was by studying sexuality, mostly homosexuality. And he did this partly theoretically by interviewing people in asylums and prisons, like his predecessors, and by experimenting himself. He took matters into his own <laughs> he took hands. Matters, he took many matters into his own hands. Uh, he encouraged his staff to be as liberal as they were comfortable with sexually. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, did a lot of fun stuff because he wanted to figure out how it worked. Did he, did he gather data? He gathered, oh, he gathered a lot of data. He would often film these experiments on camera. And this is like 1940s cameras too. So like, this is like, you need a crew to like operate like a big like crank thing while they're fucking. Uh, so we're not like in super HD here either. Um, <laughs> and a Question. Yes. Are these films available to the public? A lot of them, unfortunately, have been confiscated by the police. <laughs> he had to keep this hidden from the cops, because, like, he used this for his own personal study to, like, research, right? But he didn't show it to anyone. But, like, in the 50s and 60s and stuff like that, after he became, like, famous, people, like, were like, hey, can we look at your, like, stash? Because, like, you, you, you know some weird shit about, like, You've how homosexuals have sex. You've been studying this for a long time, Kinsey. It's time for you to release the results. You're can like, we see the tapes? no, can it's Can we see your source material? <laughs> and it's just, tapes. like, him, like, fucking in an orgy. No joke. This is le legitimately what happened. This is what the CIA is hiding from us. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> this eventually led Kinsey to develop the Kinsey scale of sexuality, which he used in his studies. Uh, which is an attempt to make human sexuality into data points. It goes from 0 to 6, with 0 being exclusively heterosexual and 6 being exclusively homosexual. And it also includes X for no sexuality whatsoever. So he includes the aces. 
Good for him. Good for him. Uh, and using this scale, he surveyed a couple of thousand people for more data and eventually put together the Kinsey reports, which are the two reports, sexual behavior in the human male and sexual behavior in the human female, which both reports like heterosexual and uh, homosexual like relations. These reports became extremely popular in America generally and, of course, within global sexual academia and helped shift the perception among some doctors that homosexuality was abnormal or something that could be cured. The reports helped normalize the idea that people like to have sex for all sorts of reasons and that this meant that all sex, hetero and homosexual sex, was less problematic and unnatural than people had previously claimed, like especially within like sexology. And along with the first oral contraceptive in the 1960s, this led to the sexual revolution, which destigmatized sex for everyone, including for gay people. Police departments reduced their anti-homosexuality departments and instead focused on what stands out more, such as decency laws, cross-dressing, cracking down on gay bars, and so on. Which, of course, eventually leads to the Stonewall Riots of 1969, which I'm sure you're going to mention a bit later. So, during this sexual revolution, we start seeing words like gay and straight and lesbian to refer to the gays. <laughs> and where do we get those words from, slave boy? Well, <laughs> it finds its base in those medical settings that I mentioned earlier. Terms like homosexual, and by extension transsexual and bisexual, begin as medical terminology by people who want to classify and cure LGBT people. But as a reaction to that, people begin to organize themselves around those terms. In fact, the term homosexual is actually originally coined by a German-Hungarian queer activist named Karoli Maria Kartberi. And it was pretty revolutionary to do this uh, because he identified a person as being, in effect, a type of person who did homosexual acts, which had previously just been called sodomy. Just like, kind of like Ulrich did. Like there's a person, like an identifying type of person who does a thing. Now, unfortunately, homosexual is almost instantly co-opted by the likes of Kraft Ebing, who use it as a descriptor of people with deviant behavior he wants to cure. But us gays have always been around, and there have always been words and phrases people use to identify themselves to fellow other LGBT people. Fellow queers? Fellow queers? <laughs> How do you do fellow queers? <laughs> How do you do fellow gays? Um, now, the word gay found popularity in the early 20th century as one of those terms, and while today it mostly refers to homosexual men, it began as a word for the whole spectrum of people who were different from the norms in terms of sexuality and gender. Uh, the word gay actually has like pejorative roots as far back as the 14th century. And while it originally has always meant like glad and happy, the way we sometimes like refer to gay now, Don we now are glad apparel, for example, in the, in the old Christmas song, it was oftentimes used as slag for someone who did immoral acts. As in, you could be called a gay man for being a womanizer, which I think is just funny. It could also refer to someone being carefree and uninhibited, uh, but the word finds a homosexual connotation when it began being used for gay boy, which was slang for a male sex worker who served male clients in the 18th century. A gay boy. A gay boy. Come here, gay boy. Come here, gay boy. Come here, gay for literally, <laughs> literally. So it, it, but it begins to sort of like take on this like connotation of like sort of like. A little lassifer, a little, like, a little dainty, a little, like, not a care in the world. I can do what I want. I can break the rules. It's fine. 
And because of this, the word gay was often used to refer to like hedonistic lifestyles, not just homosexual behavior. And interestingly enough, the term straight was already in opposition to gay before any sexual connotation. You may have heard of sayings like, I'm on the straight and narrow, uh, because it refers to yourself as being respectable, presentable, like in within the norm. <laughs> so gay means like... Like outside the norm. Outside the norm, mm. carefree. Mm. Um, but if you're straight, then you're like, you're on the level. Mm -hmm. you're, you're doing what you need to do. Straighten up. Exactly. Like I never thought I never thought of those sayings, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So and, and the word straight then becomes because it becomes an antonym to gay, and it has always been an antonym to gay. Uh, so when gay starts to begin to sexuality, that's when straights start to refer to heterosexuality <laughs> uh, as a sort of just because it's an antonym. Language. Now, because homosexuality was illegal in many places in the world up until the 1960s, it was seen as a pretty grave insult to straight up call someone a homosexual. But you could imply someone was to reduce the insult, if you still wanted to insult them, but like a little bit. And because gay meant to be like a bit wild, it was often used to refer to effeminate boys, along with artistic. You see, you know, artistic. <laughs> and into the 1960s, gay started to become more associated with homosexuality because of this. No one really decided this, that's not really how language works, but it was a slowly changing definition over time. And after the gay rights movement, like, reclaims the term and sort of, like, adopts it and, like, really makes it theirs, that connotation, like, you know, it's solidified. And today it's kind of difficult to see gay as meaning anything else than gay. Homosexual. Homosexuelle. But as I mentioned, this term actually referred to the entire field of people of varying sexualities and gender expressions outside the norm, uh, which is why initially it was called the gay rights movement. However, due to the movement having a lot of like internal political issues that ended up with gay men often leading the conversation and being the center of public outrage and attention, gay became more connected with like homosexual men mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. than anything else, even if it was more general in, uh, initially. The term lesbian became more popular among lesbian activist groups in the mid-20th century, inspired by the poet Sappho's from the island of Lesbos, who you mentioned a little bit earlier, also leading to terms like sapphic to be used interchangeably. This term was also used medically for a long time by sexologists, who were inspired by an ancient Greek poet who wrote about love between women, and like many other terms, has been reclaimed. Although there are some people living on Lesbos today, and as part of my research, they don't love this connotation because people living there are called lesbians. I love that. That is their name. I love that. People of all sexualities and genders are lesbians, are lesbians. if they come from the island yeah. of Lesbos. Um, and they sued the Greek Gay and Lesbian Association for being like, you can't call yourself lesbian. We're lesbians. We live here. Uh, and they lost. So unfortunately, like the term has sort of been taken away from them. Mm hmm Sorry, lesbians from the island of Lesbos, <laughs> but... Uh, but the lesbians have won. But the lesbians have won. Damn. <laughs> but it, it doesn't seem like they did this out of like a homophobic point of view. It's just that like... It's confusing. They want their name to sort of like be theirs because they don't... Like they're, they've owned the, the word lesbian for much longer than like the gay community has. Why don't they just embrace the fact that they share a home with an absolute icon? But they do. They they love Sappho. They love Sappho. There is actually like a lot of like lesbian sort of like events there. Like and they love it. It's actually it like boosts tourism. They like that. 
but they want like a name for themselves. And lesbian kind of is their so name. So come up with a different name. But that's why they like sapphic. That's why a lot of people actually from this island actually prefer the term sapphic. Interesting. Because sapphos. Can you imagine living on an island so old that like a historical figure like Sappho of Lesbos came from? <laughs> That's like bananas. It's It has the same name. It's still in the same place. Yeah. That's the Mediterranean for you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of stuff, especially in Greece. Greece is... If you go to Crete, it's even worse. Because yeah. then you're, you go around a little place like, ah, <laughs> the Minoans. <laughs> the, those who were there before the Greeks. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the term bisexual, uh, which is also part of the like LG, LGB acronym, uh, actually was used by biologists for a significant amount of time to refer to animals and people who we would today call intersex because of the idea that they are like two sexed, mm-hmm. that they are like that they have both, so bisexual. And this was actually picked up by people like Kraft Ebing to refer to people who were, in his mind, mentally intersex, and therefore they are they are bisexual. Mm-hmm. And then that has been, you know, also reclaimed as a term. And now intersex is more is more the term mm-hmm. used like for, medi- like medical, medical, yeah. exactly for like for the for the medical thing. And people who can love two or more genders are they they just like the word bisexual or pan, which I guess is also a thing now. And that is how we ended up with the words that we know and love in the acronym today. Not the not the T one because that's like a the trans history is like its own whole mess of a thing. Can of worms. <laughs> the whole thing, can of worms. Yeah. Yeah, we got to do an episode about trans things very soon. Yeah. Or maybe next year for... <laughs> next year for Pride. Pride. So I know that you mentioned conversion therapy a bit. A little bit. But I also have it in my section, so I'm, I'm going to go over some of it also. Yeah. I haven't... I didn't dig into the cure. No, you, didn't, much, you yeah. didn't dig into it, but I, I will dig into it. Yeah. So like I said earlier... While homosexuality slowly stopped being seen as a sinful choice and rather as a pathology to be cured, various treatments started being developed in order to cure or prevent homosexuality. At first, medical solutions were attempted, including castration, testicle implants, bladder washing, and rectal massage. Rectal massage to cure homosexuality? <laughs> they, hold, hold on here. They, they uh, I don't know what they were doing. Uh, the rectal massage was uh, actually was believed to be effective because it would allegedly kill the homosexual cells in the prostate and allow heterosexual cells to take their place. So uh, for the bladder washing, the bladder would be washed by inserting a catheter and flushing the bladder with a silver or nitrate solution. However, by 1913, doctors realized that these treatments did not work. As psychotherapy became more prominent, conversion therapy started gaining popularity originating in Europe in the late 19th century and spreading to the United States shortly after. In addition to talk therapy, lobotomies and electroshock therapies were applied. Behavioral therapy focused on aversive techniques like the inducement of nausea or paralysis in response to homoerotic imagery. Therapists also tried to induce stronger gender roles into the patients with assertiveness training for men, as it was believed that weak fathers and dominant mothers produced gay sons, and by teaching stereotypically feminine and masculine behaviors. In the 60s, the golden era of conversion therapy started to end, with professionals starting to question the effectiveness and the ethics of conversion therapy. Simultaneously, a wave of social activism fueled by the civil rights movement started gaining momentum. 
In August 1966, the police raided Compton's cafeteria in San Francisco, a space where transgender and queer people were hanging out. They met there because gay bars were often hostile to them and prohibited them from visiting. The police arrived to arrest them for loitering, but they resisted and rioted. This event predates an even more well-known event called the Stonewall Uprising. On June 28, 1969, a group of LGBTQ people resisted after police tried to raid their bar, called the Stonewall Inn, in Greenwich Village, New York. People gathered to watch the police try to arrest the bar's patrons after barricading the doors. The police officers tried to line up the patrons in the bathrooms to verify their sex in order to arrest cross-dressing or transgender individuals, but something was different that night. People refused to allow cops to inspect them in the bathrooms and also refused to produce their IDs. Discomfort spread when the police officers began to assault some of the lesbians under the guise of frisking them. The alcohol was seized and some people were told they could go home, but instead of going home, a crowd began to grow at the entrance, watching the developments, jeering and saluting the cops in an exaggerated fashion. While the cops were loading people in the police cars, an officer shoved a person in drag, who responded by hitting him on the head with her purse, as the crowd began to boo. (laughs) Another scuffle broke out between the police and a woman in handcuffs, who escaped repeatedly and fought four cops. (laughs) Unstoppable. (laughs) She escaped repeatedly and fought four cops. Yeah. Ultimately, this person cannot be caught. This is rat behavior. I love it. Ultimately, she was picked up and heaved into the back of the car, but not before she looked at the bystanders and shouted, why don't you guys do something? Mm. Soon after this, the crowd became a mob. People escaped from the police vans. Some people tried to overturn the police cars. Bricks were thrown and garbage was set on fire. The riots continued for six days with people returning to oppose the police. I love the fact that this goes on for like a week. Yeah, it was a long time. Like people go home, they have they have dinner, they go to bed, they wake up, have breakfast, and they go to riot again. <laughs> they do it repeatedly, I love it. The Mattachine Society newsletter wrote about the riots the following. The Stonewall catered largely to a group of people who are not welcome in or cannot afford other places of homosexual social gathering. The Stonewall became home to these kids. When it was raided, they fought for it. That and the fact that they had nothing to lose other than the most tolerant and broad-minded gay place in town explains why. This increase in gay rights activism caused a shift in the view of homosexuality as a pathology, and in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association declassified homosexuality as a mental illness. However, many tragedies followed. On June 24, 1973, members of the Metropolitan Community Church, MCC for short, a congregation founded by and for gay people, gathered in a bar they had converted into a church in New Orleans. An unidentified arsonist set fire to the establishment, killing 32 people and injuring many others. The arsonist was never identified, and this is one of the largest tragedies involving LGBTQ people in American history. In 1981, gay men started getting sick and dying of an unidentified disease. Public health authorities, physicians, and the government blamed gay liberation and the loosening of sexual mores for the epidemic. The government, under Ronald Reagan, did little to help curb the spread of the epidemic, and it was only until 1983 that it started even being properly spoken about in the media. Ronald Reagan's press secretary, Larry Speaks, when questioned about the president's plans surrounding the epidemic, called it the gay plague and shied away from giving a substantive answer. The LGBTQ community responded by intensifying their political activism, organizing rallies and protests to call attention to the epidemic, 
hold fundraisers to raise money for virus research, and founded organizations, including ACT UP, to improve the lives of people with AIDS, whether directly through advocacy, research, and treatment, and improve legislation and public policies. Additionally, if you've ever wondered why the L, as in lesbian, is the first letter in LGBTQ, it's because of the substantial and largely unacknowledged support that lesbians offered to the rest of the community during the AIDS crisis. Lesbians cared for and petitioned in Washington to fight for the human rights of gay men suffering from AIDS, donated blood when other gay men were prevented from doing so, provided food, clothing, and housing, and took leadership roles in LGBT communities. Lastly, I want to end the section by saying that if you're gay, and especially if you're white, take the time to think about our history and remember the previous generations of lesbian, transgender, and queer people of color who created community and prevailed in times when mainstream society did not want us to exist. Rights were not given to us, they were taken. And that's an important lesson, especially in times like now, when women's right to bodily autonomy in the US is being taken away, and when other civil rights are called into question, like access to contraceptives and gay and interracial marriage. Also, this is obviously an overview that focuses on American and European struggles for gay rights. But being gay is criminalized in a large part of the world, with punishments ranging from detention and prison to death. So, you know, know your history and don't get comfortable. <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's something that is really important. We really tend to think that once we have once we rights, have a right, it's it'll... there to stay, and like we take it for granted, but you can never take rights for granted, apparently. Especially th this week, as we're recording this podcast, because like yeah, yesterday, yesterday Roe v. Wade was, was overturned. overturned. Um, and yesterday. It, yeah. And we were already starting to hear. Uh, it's already banned in Texas. It's our, no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's banned in Texas, but we already start hearing like whispers of other, other civil rights <laughs> uh, possibly being taken away, and it's just. I'm also, um, I've also seen some, some posts on like Reddit of people being like, oh, I love living in Sweden. Like this would never happen here. And it's like, <laughs> it could. Uh, what makes you say that? <laughs> what makes you think yeah. it could never happen here? Yeah, one government term with the Swedish Democrats in it. And yeah. so sudden, suddenly, yeah. you know, got to keep an eye out. Got to keep an eye out. Never let the straights rest easy. <laughs> So that is gay history. Oh God! All of it. No, there's so much more. Like we, this is such an overview. This like, is holy shit. this is a very general overview. I mean, we had to do. We did like what we know about homosexuality through time, like homosexual mm -hmm. activity, where it appeared, yeah. and how like the classification, classification, medical like, uh, pathologization, legal status <laughs> of homosexuality through time in the world, mm -hmm. uh, criminalization, pathologi pathologization, pathologization. Uh, like struggle for gay rights i always feel with this kind of episode that that i'm not talking enough about like uh places outside of europe mm -hmm. like it, especially i think in modern times it, it tends to to get a little bit like america slash europe like yeah. centric but yeah but that's also you know partially because like classified you know homosexuality and stuff like that happens in like the 1800s at which point the world is eurocentric because mm -hmm. it's all owned by like three countries in europe mm -hmm. um and unfortunately like a lot of history because of that has sort of like you know been dictated from european point of view mm -hmm. unfortunately 
How did you feel about this episode? Long. That's good. I like I like gay history. I, my my field in history has always been like more trans focused, mm-hmm. so it's interesting to sort of like dig into the more just about the homosexuals. The homosexuals, and their earnings. Sounds good. We'll do an episode about tra- transsexuality. Uh, we love talking about the transsexuals. Yeah, and that will be that will be its own thing, one day. But for now. This was our episode, our Pride special, our episode on gay history. Yes. Uh, and I have been Salem. I have been Mia Mulder. If you enjoyed this... gay. <laughs> if and you... transgender. Are you transgendering? I'm transgendering. As you... Actually, throughout this podcast, while you've been listening, you have slowly been transgendered. <laughs> Great. I have been... Tra- I have subliminally been transgendering you. <laughs> At night when I sleep, you whisper in my ear, transgender, 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 transgender. Be transgender. <laughs> Be transgender. Yeah. Um, anyway, if you like this show and you want to support us, do consider supporting us on Patreon. And yes. if you can't or don't want to do that, consider rating us, um, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps a lot. Yes, or on Spotify. Spotify has a review system, apparently. Yeah, but you can like write comments. That's true. But you can rate us. For Please sure. write comments on the thing. We have a PO box. Uh, link to that should be available in the description of this episode. We can add that. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so if you want to send us stuff, please do. Because that's always fun. If you want to send us like a little drawing of a leech or some a little fun little medical knowledge tidbit. <laughs> Otherwise, thank you for listening to this episode and we will see you next time. Bye. Happy Pride. <laughs>